Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And this is going to be a very special podcast because it's a conversation that was recorded a couple of days ago at the Dorky Book Festival. John, I sat down with John Collison. You know exactly yeah, who he is. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating guy. Yeah co-founder of Stripe, now the president of Stripe. Really extraordinary brain. Great fun as well. Really interesting guy. Great laugh. We had a wonderful afternoon. We chatted then. He hung around Dorky. We went to see all lots of other events. So uh, I'll just play it there, John, as your man said. Play it, it there, Colette. Roll it there, Colette. <laughs> John Carlson, ladies and gentlemen. John, let's kick off. Let's kick off. Stripe, Stripe. What do you do? What? <laughs> what would you say you do here? Yeah. Um, so, look, I mean, I think most people maybe know us as a way to accept credit cards, which might seem like a pretty random thing for two Irish kids to have started. But, you know, the way we got to it was just we had run an internet business before Stripe. And it was, it was the hardest thing about running the business. Like the code we could handle, the operations we could handle. But just actually being able to accept money from people over the internet, we said, this is surprisingly hard. <laughs> and so we started with that. But since then, we've, yeah, you may have heard us, we talk sometimes about this desire to grow the GDP of the internet. And we can talk a little bit about, you know, the internet economy and how, uh, I guess it's the title of the talk, and, uh, you know, how we think about doing that. But a big part of it is we keep kind of iterating, going, asking, just asking the businesses running on Stripe, what's holding you back? What is hassle that you'd rather not have to deal with? And so since then, we've expanded quite a bit from maybe what people originally associate us with. And we do things now like, you know, handling VAT for people, where this is something that it's simultaneously, it's meant to be formulaic. You know, I think when they came up with the construct, it was meant to be, oh, very simply, you take this product, multiply by the number or whatever. And actually you talk to any actual real business and handling VAT, huge pain in the neck, especially if they're selling across Europe. And so we said, oh, we could probably, I mean, they're already using Stripe to accept payments, probably handle that for them too. So we're kind of increasingly the platform for running an internet business. So, I mean, you, you know, yeah, you know, it's all, it's all very hard to say, I mean, you know, myself and my brother were, were trying to get paid and we couldn't get paid. And then we decided to set up a business. There's a difference between that moment, okay, and what Stripe is now. So the last 10 years... Just give us a sense of the roller coaster. Yeah, and it is this part of it where you're along for the ride, right? And I think actually one of the things, like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, uh, in Silicon Valley now. That's where we, uh, you know, we really started working on Stripe. And I've noticed an important part of being a Silicon Valley entrepreneur is pretending everything was part of your grand master plan. <laughs> <laughs> and pretending everything was intentional along the way. And you had the foresight to see exactly how this industry would shape out. Whereas actually the way things happen is you're like puttering along and you can see about, you know, you're in a fog and you can see kind of five feet into the distance. And so we knew that 
this is a problem we had. We talked to a few friends of ours. We knew it was a problem for them. It's like, okay, we'll try that. What was our market sizing? What was our vision for the way things would unfold? We, uh, we're, I was 19, you know what I mean? We didn't know. Um, but, but again, as, a, as an internet entrepreneur, you have to be a visionary. And you're like, I remember seeing someone, one of the Twitter founders, and you know, we set out to redefine communication. What, what does that mean? Uh, how, how do you go about that? Like, hmm, just another day redefining communication. Um, and so for us, I think we have been part of a number of very important trends. We have been the beneficiary of a number of important trends. We have been this amount of right place, right time. I think we've helped some of those trends along. And so, you know, part of it is just the internet economy was actually quite small in, you know, 2010 when we yeah. got going. It's actually still quite small in the scheme of things. You know, 4% of Ireland's e- economy is e-commerce. That's pretty small in kind of the grand scheme of things compared to probably where it will go. Um, uh, you know, there's other, the, you know, we can talk about globalization and things like this, kind of the, the wave of more and more people starting businesses. But I think, yeah, part, part of it is we were <laughs> in the right place at the right time. No, but, but, but again, so the internet economy, where do you see it going? Explain to me what, you, what it is. Explain to everyone, not just me, explain to everyone what it is yeah. and where you see it, see it going. Yeah. And what the factors are going to influence it. Right. So, I mean, in a way, there is no internet economy, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, where uh, there is commerce that um, is more or less mediated by the internet, but it's, uh, you know, a somewhat porous space where, you know, if you buy something online uh, and, you know, it's shipped to you, that's kind of the internet economy, kind of not. It's like a physical thing at the end of the day. But there's two big trends that we see as part of the internet economy we're quite excited about and we're really trying to, to help drive. The first is just it being easier to start a business and it continuing to be easier and easier to start a business that addresses a large audience. And so, you know, historically speaking, not actually that easy to start a business on the high street here, right? You yeah. probably have to go get a loan. You have to go get a premises. If you're starting a coffee shop, like, you know, espresso machines are pretty expensive. Like the, the, the barriers to entry are not trivial. Whereas Stripe, when we started it, it was the two of us. We were coding away on our laptops. And, you know, the, the cost of starting a business kind of was more or less zero. And so you have, on the one hand, the kind of decline of the actual capital investment required to start a business. And on the other hand, you can address way more customers where we can sell this to, you know, this product to anyone around the, the world. And, you know, Stripe serves a lot of exporters where now, you know, a lot of the people we'd have, uh, you know, McNutt, the, uh, uh, you know, who make woolen products in Donegal, they're selling actually majority on an export basis, you know, all yeah. around the world. It's not just uh, kind of selling to Ireland. However, I think that status of the internet being a fabulous place to do business is threatened, where there's more and more complexity that goes into running an internet business. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mentioned VAT as one, where it's yeah. just like a good notion you know, the implementation means that it is yet another thing that businesses have to deal with. There's GDPR, there's regulation, there's kind of all these, there's all this weight that is placed on businesses, all this complexity. And, you know, every individual aspect might have a good reason for it, things like that. But the sum is just this weight of complexity that uh, weighs on businesses. I think there's an interesting bridging point ahead of us where is the internet economy controlled by a very small number of businesses or is it a vibrant ecosystem yeah. where you can kind of have lots of small businesses? And I think it's not actually obvious where it goes. And that if you look at kind of lots of industries, you know, there aren't, you look at kind of the, the media business and, you know, TV channels and things like that, you know, cable uh, or, or, or satellite or something like that. It's a very small number of, you know, conglomerates, basically. And it's almost, you know, it's a trope in fiction. Like I remember I enjoyed reading the, um, the Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson 
Red Mars series. The, I think the first one's better than the the. the <laughs> he kind of ran out of steam a little bit in some of the uh, the subsequent ones. But uh, the the bogeymen in these uh, books, which are about Mars explanation uh, exploration, are the transnational companies, uh, which are kind of the you know mega nationals on which, steroids. Which now you are one. Well, well, no, no, okay, so just 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 very boss. Okay, on steroids <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that 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 run the world. But again, it, it's like it's a trope in fiction. The kind of yeah. evil big companies, and we just think that would be a bad direction for the internet economy. And so you want to make it the case that it's easy for upstarts to come along, new people to start businesses, things like that. But you actually have to invest to make that possible. Like entropy, you know, the amount of entropy in the world increases over time. You actually have to work to condense complexity. And so that is one of the big trends that we are kind of monitoring with the internet economy, which is it should be the case that we have a Cambrian explosion of exciting new businesses I don't think we can take that for granted. And, and I think you could see some consolidation. So th- this is, I didn't expect to go with this this way so early, but are you, are you worried, therefore, about the fact, about the tendency for monopolies in businesses and the fact that, you know, a Stripe may well be a candidate for that or other, other Silicon Valley companies are already? Yeah, I think you, I think in any industry, you want to make sure that, you know, new entrants can come along and, you know, uh, upstarts can come along. Now, I think with, say, the current slate of tech companies, I think sometimes people tend to over-worry a little bit. And... Uh, you would say that. Uh, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm talking yeah, about, yeah, the, you know, the Googles and Facebooks and yeah, things like yeah, this, yeah. where, you know, there was a time in Silicon Valley where IBM was absolutely invincible. Yes. And, you know, yeah, IBM yeah, yeah. is a monopoly and there'll be no kind of uh, new computer companies founded. And then, you know, we all know where that went. And then there was a time, you know, when Microsoft was this behemoth and everyone was worried that, you know, the, the would be no more startups because, you know, Microsoft would come along and things like that. And now Facebook, you know, people are saying there will be no new social, social networks yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that. That's kind of obviously untrue. But I think people tend to over, people tend to throw around the word monopoly and just use it in a very loose term. And if you look yeah. at social networks or something like that, there sure seem to be a lot of social networks and things like that. So I think one should be worried about, and we pay a lot of attention to ease of doing business indexes and things like that. You know, is it possible for people to come along and start a, start a business? But I actually think the reason why it is hard to start a business is seldom because Google exists or something like yes. that. Yes, no, 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 I get you. And we'll probably come back to it. I just want to go back mm-hmm. a little bit, John. I'll go back a little bit. What was driving yourself? I mean, you say yourself and Patrick did it because you you, you couldn't get paid, right? Mm-hmm. But we talked about inside that this, 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 what, Business, going into business, many, many software engineers, many, many engineers, you know, tend not to go into mm-hmm. business. They tend to go into employment. What was it in you that said, I want to go into the business world? I'm not sure we were particularly, we weren't kind of business people before we started Stripe. We didn't know yeah. that much about business, didn't know how to read a balance sheet or an income statement or anything like that. All that we picked up along the way during the company and one of the things that I like about, um, again, the internet economy is that there is this very gradual spectrum between doing a project, doing a hobby, and doing a business. Again, in the real world, if you decide, like, I'm going to set up a coffee shop, I mean, yeah, there's some, you know, maybe kind of halfway steps, like a, you know, a truck or something like that. But broadly speaking, at some point, you have to decide, okay, I'm going to go rent out premises, I'm going to buy all the equipment. It's, it's you know, it's quite a quantum jump. Whereas online, in our case, 
we started building this project that we thought was interesting. Like we were in college at the time when we started it and it was a side project. It wasn't even our only side project. So one of the side projects we had going on was this kind of Stripe thing. We got some customers and then, you know, over time starts, you know, the customers ask for stuff and, you know, they have complaints and everything like that. So you kind of continue progressing more and more, but it can be very gradual. And this is one thing I get very excited about is, again, as I look at the internet economy, people are starting to throw around the term now creator economy. And like all these terms, it can become a little bit of a, uh, a buzzword. But there is something real there, the notion that previously people might just blog. And that was you know, a thing that people would do. And there's still lots of bloggers out there. But now there's things Substack, where people can actually start a little mini media outlet by themselves. And you know, certain people start you know, writing on the side, they can actually get paid by their readers for what they're producing. And oftentimes, you know, it becomes significant enough that they can actually afford to go full-time on it and things like yeah. this. But again, it smooths out all the edges that you have, where previously, you know, I am either, you know, working in, you know, my current job or I'm going to, you know, go become a journalist. And here you can have, I'm a blogger, I'm a blogger with a, you know, a paid button on the side. I'm actually earning a little bit of an income on this. Okay, I'm actually going full-time on my Substack, And we see that again and again across all sorts of different industries. And I think that the ability for people to gradually ease into running a business, I think is a, is a very good trend. And tell me that the difference now, you're, 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 you're home, probably you're home more than Patrick. You're, you're, you're kind of, I wouldn't say one foot in, in, in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. one foot in but you're here a lot. What, 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 are your, what are your impressions of what's going on here? No, I think that is accurate where, you know, uh, I, I spent lots of time in Silicon Valley, spent a decent amount of time back here as well. And I actually really like it where getting to observe a culture from the outside or kind of having a point of comparison as opposed to, you know, being the, like the two fish passing each other, lovely water today. Oh, what's water? Uh, and, you know, not knowing it. Like, you know, you talk to Americans and it's a very funny thing. Americans think they don't have an accent. Uh, like they say, you know, you have an accent and I don't. And like, <laughs> but, but, but they have, whereas getting to kind They're of... like people from Dorking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so kind of getting to observe the American culture from the outside and appreciate yeah. kind of certain parts of it. And then kind of conversely, then kind of spending time in Ireland, getting to kind of observe the, you know, the Irish culture from the, uh, from the outside. That's actually quite fun. And tell me, you know, you know again, for a lot of people, yeah. what is it like building a company in Silicon Valley? What are, the, what are the, the things that challenge you most? What are the things that you found most easy? What are the things you could, you could replicate? Because mm-hmm. lots and lots of people in the audience will say, wow, you know, how do they do that? How do those two guys from Limerick do yeah, yeah, yeah. How did they build this company so quickly? Yeah, uh, from out of nowhere. I yes. mean, uh, and was it essential to go to America to do that? Yes. All that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a set of things that people talk about, and I think when people try to understand differences in ecosystems, say they they try to look at what you can measure. And so, you know, economists love uh, uh, looking at the, um, sorry, if I'm not making you defend your profession, but... It's um, all right, it's all right. Uh, right. We start by slagging, then exactly. we defend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they love to look at the number of patents and, you know, they say, well, the difference between the number of patents yeah. in Ireland or number of patents in Silicon Valley or something like that. And I, I think that's, you know, obviously wrong. Like, again, actually the company with the, uh, the most number of patents uh, being produced is IBM. Uh, and so make of that, you know, quality you as will. a metric, <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. What, you, what you will. But, uh, you know, maybe a more subtle one is people talk about the amount of capital invested in startups. 
And, uh, you know, they use that as a metric. And, you know, if that number is going up, we should feel happy about, you know, the Irish tech world. And if it's, uh, you know, somewhat stagnant, then we'll maybe feel somewhat disappointed or, you know, we'll bemoan the fact that it's smaller than the US. Again, I feel that's a little bit of the, it's like the drunk looking for their watch under the lamplight. You know, we're looking at that metric because that's a thing that we can measure. I think the thing that I see much more in the US scene is there's definitely a huge amount of ambition. And, uh, you know, in certain areas, you know, uh, uh, where you get these larger-than-life characters or, you know, we can make fun of it a bit. But it's real as well. And, you know, people in Ireland talk about the begrudgery. And, like, there is a little bit of the the tall poppy syndrome yeah. that, you can, uh, that you can see at times. Whereas in the US, there is kind of a real celebration of ambition and enthusiasm for ambition kind of for the sake of it. And again, the US is, for the longest time, you know, the gold rush in California or, you know, the, you know, the railway. Like, the, there's been these larger-than-life characters all throughout its, yeah. uh, its, its history. The other thing is that it's a very risk-seeking place. And so one of the things that Stripe definitely benefited from is in the early days in the US, the fact that, you know, here we are, two Irish hooligans, you know, uh, who, uh, you know, managed to raise a little bit of money and working on a startup. Um, But you very quickly need to actually have, you know, people with real experience building a company to, to scale it up. And, you know, one of the, I think, like the really unfair things that happens with a company is that, you know, People want to write about me and Patrick. You know, that's what you know, the headlines will tend to be about. There's tons of people at Stripe who've been there five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, have been a huge part of, you know, what the company has become, the culture, the achievements of it. But, uh, you know, the, the attention is somewhat tilted. But anyway, in those, in those early days, you'd be ten people in a kind of little grubby office that doesn't exactly yeah, no, look like I've seen like some of the much. photos. Exactly, you've yeah. seen some of the photos. Of bikes hanging here. And people yes, here. you might have someone who's a very experienced, you know, technology executive or something like that saying, sure, I'll give it a try. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go to something else. So that's think, the risk. And I think the risk-seekingness, not just on the entrepreneurial side, but in the, that's in the water. Is, yes, and um, even in their careers, they say, I'll, I'll give these guys a go, we'll figure this out. Correct. And uh, that doesn't happen here. Or it's not, it's not, it's not I, a European thing. I think it's thing. quite American. You know, it feels yeah. quite American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, let's, if, we, if we talk about building the business, right? At what stage did you, you decide, okay, we have to get almost adults now. Like, we're, we're two young fellows from Lyric, but this is a serious business and we need to get serious. And this isn't just serendipity and it isn't just a bit of luck. And we didn't just, yeah. uh, you know, casually come across this idea. Yes. This, we're in this seriously. At what moment is that fusion that you say, okay, I'm going to change? I think it might have been the summer of 2010. We had been working on it as a, again, as a little bit of a side project, but it was just starting to work and customers really liked it. And again, this was the, this was kind of how we picked it as the main thing we were going to do. And again, you know, I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to drop out of college, but... Which you did. Which I did, yeah. Uh, and does, does anybody in Silicon Valley finish college? <laughs> just, just so because I've got two kids now, we can. I'm, I'm looking for advice here. It happens more than you think. Yeah, you know, people might might bring it up and play company, but it happens. Uh, but no. So anyway, th- th- that summer we kind of had to make a decision of is is this what we're doing? And just as we talked to customers, and they said this kind of really solves the problem for me. That was uh, that was an indication that we should make it. And, and when do you decide? Okay, go. we're going to go from small scale to actually scale scale. And what do we need to do that? Mm-hmm. Like when you came up with an inventory, okay, we need money. Yep. We need people. We need customers, obviously. We need the product. Yep. And was this all happening very, very quickly? Well, it was, it's all been gradual, right? In that we are, we are, the, we are the boiled frogs. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're now, Stripe is 8,000 people and we have offices around the world. You know, big presence here, big presence in uh, uh, kind of lots of places. But there was never any one moment that was discontinuous. And so you're hiring and you're building up the business and things like that. And so I think part of what makes it easier is, and again, you know, I definitely, if you 
dropped me in at the beginning into kind of the current position, I would fail miserably. Whereas you actually have, you know, now for the job I'm doing, I at least have 11 years of training. And so that's, you know, the only thing that helps me. <laughs> that yeah. does have me. Like we were talking inside about Irishness mm-hmm. and this concept of Irishness. And does it help you in the, in the cosmopolitan world? What do, you, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. Where I think that... So Stripe is a very global business and is part of a trend of globalization. Like one thing that we're fascinated by is the, um, the economists talk about the gravity equation in uh, trade, which you're uh, probably familiar yeah. with, where basically, uh, you know, gravity falls off with the, you know, the square of the distance from the, you know, the, the thing you're at. And trade actually weirdly does the same thing, where the amount of trade with a certain point tends to be, if you look at it on a scatter plot, uh, you know, it falls off off in an exponential way. And so we trade much more with, you know, countries that are closer to us than countries that are further away. And again, one of the big trends that I guess Stripe is a bet on is that you probably want to enable much more cross-border trade, much more trade with people all around the world than we see today. And it's probably somewhat silly impediments like payment methods that is holding this back. So Stripe is really a bet on globalization, more global interconnectedness. So, so do you think the, the internet and Stripe challenges that idea that you trade with your neighbor? Uh, sorry, in what sense? In, in the sense that in actual, if you bring the costs down and the product is sufficiently usable, your neighbor doesn't matter. I mean, I think your neighbor matters for lots of reasons. No, but, no, but, but in but, this regard. No, no, no. But, but, but exactly, I do think, if you just like log on to an internet forum and you're chatting away to people... Um, you'd be talking to people all around the world. And yet when it comes to trade, there is still that gravitational pull yeah. that I think is probably stronger than it should be. Uh, and so, you know, say, you know, we're always talking about the EU single digital market as a thing. It hasn't really happened yet. If you look at the numbers, and again, we think it should be the case much more. But I think Ireland is a, I think what helps us is Ireland has always been a very outward looking um, nation. And people tell that in the emigration story, but I actually think they probably don't tell it as much as they should, where if you're a small country, you have to look outwards, you have to actually um, uh, be engaging with, you know, a huge amount of the rest of the world. Whereas again, I mean, the US, you just look at the sheer scale of it, they can kind of think more in terms of what's going on with the US. And I actually think we probably, we like to over, you know, talk about our Irishness and, you know, the, you know, the, the history uh, over the last kind of hundred years and maybe under talk about a pretty interesting aspect, which I think is we have always been somewhat globally minded citizens, again, even beyond just pure emigration story, where, uh, you know, you're talking about Joyce earlier, who was bopping around Europe and spending time in Trieste and things like that. Or, um, you know, you look at the history of Ireland has always punched way above its weight in uh, the sciences. And you look at people like, um, Boole or Boyle or people like that, they weren't part of an Irish scientific community. I mean, they were, but they were part of a broader European scientific movement. And, uh, you know, Boyle was looking at what the, you know, the Germans were doing and building on that work and things like that. And so anyway, I think Ireland has always actually been part, been very much outward looking. And I think we uh, you know, as we look back on 1922 and things like that, we like to look at the Irishness and kind of focus very yeah. much on what's going on in the island. And that's important. But I think we probably undertell this story of Ireland interacting with the rest of the world. No, because there is, I mean, there is this, there is this observation that, you know, globalization, the world we're living in now, we can come on to the fact that maybe it's going to reverse. We can talk mm-hmm. about that in a second. But 
it does benefit small players mm -hmm. because you don't have to be a big guy anymore. You don't have to have the big navy and the big army and that sort of thing. You know, the whole history of small countries, you're trying to get over this, they call the tyranny of geography, mm -hmm. the tyranny of size and globalization helps that. Now, do you notice that even within your own workforce that the people who are coming and giving it a go are coming from all sorts of odd and unusual places. Oh yeah, and we, we definitely have that here. And I think, you know, everyone's noticed this, say, with Dublin. I think it's fabulous to see over the past kind of 20 years, Dublin has become much more cosmopolitan. And I think, you know, tech has been a part of that and also a beneficiary of that, where there's just, we'd have loads of people in the, um, in our Dublin office from, from all over. And I think that's really nice to see that kind of even more of those connections being built. So, so let's talk about some of the, if you were to look forward, so obviously Stripe, you're looking forward all the time. You're trying to make sort of conjecture about what the world's looking like. Mm -hmm. What do you sense? Um, in the internet economy or more broadly? No, just more broadly, because the internet economy is a function of, the, of society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the thing. All these, all these terms make yeah. no sense other than in the general. Yeah. Because the particular term is, is ludicrous. Yes. In the general, the internet economy is part of this. Yes. Of us. I mean, one thing, this is, this is a little wonkish, so this is sadly kind of sticking within uh, the economic zone. But I've been thinking about the you know, Coase and the theory of the firm. And so, uh, oh, you know... Oh, he's going straight wonk. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Coase tried to ask the question, which maybe sounds like kind of a pretty obvious thing to ask or kind of an odd thing to question, just why do we have companies? Like, wh why do you need that as a construct? Yeah. And in particular, why can't you have individuals who are just trading with each other on an ongoing basis every day. And so, you know, the coffee shop, you know, in the morning, uh, you know, the coffee shop owner goes down to the shop. And if it is kind of the economically most advantageous thing for them to serve coffee, then the free market will cause workers to come to the door that morning and uh, actually sign up to be baristas. And so, you know, he's asking this question, why do we have firms? firms yeah, and yeah. why don't you have kind of the free market at this really micro level? And the answer he came up with, which by the way is a little dissatisfying because it's kind of a tautological answer, is transaction costs. And so, you know, he goes on about this and, and explains it where, well, it's kind of inefficient to have to like every single morning as the coffee shop rehire people and determine are they a good barista and things like that. The transaction costs are too high. And so we're just going to have a firm where people are permanently employed. But again, it's an interesting question because, you know, the coffee shop sort of isn't free market. It's, uh, you know, all these people have these well-defined jobs and there isn't kind of ongoing retrading of the activity that's going on. Anyway, the reason I bring the, this all up is, again, I think there is a question of th th there has been a movement towards size in general over the last, I mean, many decades, 100 years, pick whatever uh, uh, period you want, or, you know, chain restaurant, things like this. There have been advantages to scale. And what are the places where the internet changes that or reverses yeah. that. And so, you know, we spoke about one example earlier on with, with Substack and things like that. But I think there's lots of other interesting places where you could say the better coordination that is made possible by the internet actually allows you to change slightly sure, your conception yeah. of what a firm is yeah. and where it's and required. And a firm is a, rel it's a relatively new thing. Correct. And, and it, maybe it's, like it's, a, it's a 19th century phenomenon it, it, and it, it might not last. And, and it just it might not be right for, for everything. And, um, and so, for example, open source software. You know, there is a lot of the software that you use every day, a lot of the software that kind of goes into your iPhone is actually not developed by companies. It is developed by sort of volunteer organizations, this kind of open source software movement, where people are just interested in developing good software and they do it, you know, they maybe collect donations or something like that. You know, again, Stripe's kind of getting into this, supporting that as one area we serve. But uh, crypto people love talking about, has anyone here heard oh, of you, DAOs? Or? You mentioned it, not me. We were thinking when we were going to get to crypto. <laughs> I said, you throw it out first. So yeah, I was, yeah. 
Has anyone here heard of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization? Yeah, there's a few hands there. So anyway, crypto people love, there's a line I heard recently, some wag on Twitter, uh, uh, where, you know, it used to be as a wise man once said, uh, now it's, uh, I saw a tweet uh, that said, um, but uh, someone was saying that every generation thinks they invented sex, but this generation thinks they invented banking. As... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as it came to crypto. But anyway, so uh, you know, the idea behind decentralized autonomous organizations is that you can maybe have different kinds of organizations of people coming together to coordinate a company of, you know, maybe a big company of 10,000 people is one way you can kind of coordinate a bunch of humans to work together. Whereas there's maybe other ways that you can do that. And so with crypto tokens, you could, they had this kind of famous case where it's like out of a movie, they tried to buy a copy of the US constitution. There's, you know, a few of these original copies floating around and raised a bunch of money to do it and things like that. Anyway, crypto people are very excited about DAOs. There hasn't been a kind of a bunch of specific stuff done with them yet. Uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they have a, a, a bright future, we'll see. But I think with the internet, we're already seeing new forms of coordination happening. Yeah, and, like and ease of coordination. Exactly, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like open source software. And also the fact that it allows people of similar interests to hang out together in a virtual world. So in the old days, if you were interested in a certain thing, you, you, you couldn't hang out. There was nobody else around. And now on, online and in, in the DAO's world, you can find these people. The you can they go yeah. infinitely deep. And, yeah, they go, and, 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 and infinitely horizontal. Yeah. Now you mentioned crypto. Uh, Oh dear, Pandora's box. No, 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 no. Uh, And banking in the the one breath, okay? Stripe is in the banking business. It's in the payments business. What do you think the future of banking is? Yeah, I mean, we're in a slightly different business. We're in the the payments business and not the banking business. And that might sound kind of... But a big part of the banking business is the... Well, it isn't, it isn't. I, I think of banking as... Banking is kind of a funny business when you think about it, because you go to, no, I'm serious. You go, you go to a bank and you say, I have a hundred euros here. I want to leave that with you. I want you to keep it perfectly safe and please do not lose it. It's very important to me. And by the way, I need to be able to turn up at any time and withdraw it. And so like, don't go do anything with it. And they say, okay, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> And they turn around the next day and they loan it out to someone else and they do that multiple times. And so it's kind of, it would be a scandal if it wasn't already a thing that we did. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine if Facebook started doing this, what the headlines would read? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I won't you use your data. Just give me your data. And then you fly, well, they are doing that. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, 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 so banking is a particular thing and it's, you know, how we increase the money supply in the economy. Whereas we are more in the, payments, which is just kind of moving money around on people's behalf business, and increasingly in the software business, where we're kind of providing the software for running people's business. And so I think the future of banking is defined by this particular fact that it's this very, you put yeah. all the eggs in the basket, and then the basket goes all around the world. And you pretend you know, it isn't going around the world. Exactly, but you pretend the basket is still there. It's this kind of very odd business. But I think the obvious thing to talk about is, uh, you know, m- maybe twofold, like, a lot of things, there's you know, scale economies coming to banking. And so, uh, you know, say in the United States, a lot of the large banks have taken market share over time uh, uh, compared to the, uh, the smaller banks because the retail banks, kind of the retail presence is a bit less um, relevant maybe. So that's one. The second is the, uh, the neobank where, you know, everyone here is into Monzo and Revolution, all these kinds yeah. of things. And I think that, I mean, it, it makes sense because a lot of the neobanks offer just much better customer experience. But- and that feels like a... Fintech, neobanks, that feels That's like it's got a lot it's, of room to run. Yeah, it's also more, more maybe not the future of banking, the future of money. Yeah. Because what we're talking about is money and conceptions of money and yeah. where you leave money and who creates money and who doesn't create money. Do you think we're going through that fintech is part of a revolution in conceptions of money? 
I think fintech is maybe more accurately described as technology finally coming to finance, including the name. Um, but in particular, the internet came along. And you know, do you remember in like the 90s, there was this great period of, you know, the information superhighway and people making all these prognostications. And yeah, and the prognostications are always ahead of the reality. Like, you know, you'll be buying cinema tickets on your phone and things like that. And like, you were eventually going to be buying cinema tickets on your phone, but they were talking about it on like the WAP, you know, Nokia 3310, and no one really did that. It was too annoying. But like the future did eventually come to pass. And similarly, the internet came along and you'd think it would change finance and banking, Nothing really happened. You know, you're still going down the street to the bank or something like that. And, you know, you're kind of, is this thing on? Um, Like everyone was wondering, is that ever going to happen? And it just was on lag for whatever reason. And now there's all these, you know, really high quality banking apps, really high quality personal finance apps. There's lots more competition enabled by the internet where you can do mortgage comparison or loan comparison or things like that. And just for whatever reason, there was a bit of a delay in that actually coming to pass. 
in the presidential election. You know, Nixon won the debate, if you were listening on the radio, because of the substance, but, uh, you know, Nixon was not the most telegenic presence. And uh, JFK won the debate, if you were actually kind of watching on TV, and people kind yeah. of decrying that, uh, you know, uh, kind of like some of the more modern social media debates. And, you know, AI now, people wondering, you know, I am thoroughly unworried about AI, and I enjoy reading all the tweets about kind of people worrying about, uh, you know, the AI becoming sentiment or things like that. I think all these technologies come along and there's an adaptation period and then we figure it out. So, so do you think like the, you're not worried at all about any level of artificial intelligence and how it might change? But so when you're not worried about how technology could change humans, you're not worried about power, you're not worried about any of those issues? Again, I think society always adapts. Yeah. And yeah, on the AI point, uh, I was listening to a podcast with Mark Andreessen recently, and he was saying uh, AI is just linear algebra, and I'm, I think we'll handle linear algebra just fine. But, you know, AI is kind of the dress top, whereas like Siri, no one's really worried about being killed by Siri, you know, and, but <laughs> AI is always like yeah, the name yeah, of what's just beyond the horizon. Yeah, yeah the, 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 whereas, the, the, the creepy thing yeah, over there. Yeah, whereas like autocorrect, it's like, I think I could take autocorrect. It doesn't seem that good at what it does. Um <laughs> And so AI is always this kind mean. of yeah, undefined yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Ju- just beyond the horizon. But no, look when the um, you know uh, when the motor car came out, you know those new kinds of bank robberies because people took machine guns and cars and they said, okay, you know we can now have these you know high speed bank robberies. And for a while, everyone's like, shit, the car is terrible. It's enabling this kind of things. And it's like, okay, no, we can figure out how to stop the bank robberies. Just uh, there's always an adaptation period. Uh, and tell me you know, again, when you're looking around the world now, you know where's the opportunities that you see? Where, where, I mean, because we were talking, we can, we can talk about the challenges all the time. We're going to worry and, and all that's yep. agonizing. But in terms of the, the bright new future. Ah, there's loads of stuff. So I think the unlocking of human capital broadly enabled by the internet. Again, it's one of these, I think maybe one of the common themes of what we've been talking about is sometimes the trend arrives and you haven't really seen it show up in a big way. Like, you know, the internet came and finance wasn't revolutionized by it until about 20 years later. And there was kind of this period where it's like, weren't we meant to have, you know, finance become better thanks to the internet? And there's lots of other things. So as you look at um, just the fact that it is becoming less relevant where you are in the world geographically and you have more opportunities available to you, that there are so many talented people all around the world in, you know, poorer countries who now have access to new opportunities. Again, you know, I spoke about the, um, you know, the, the open source software and things like that, but just the fact that so many more people can get a high paying job as a software developer than was the case 10 or 20 years ago, because there are so many more companies doing kind of remote work. I think that you could really underrate that as a trend because, you know, people saw the COVID and we can work remotely, things like that, no big deal. I think it's massive where, you know, all these companies, maybe remote became a thing that they were used to, they got comfortable with. And so now increasingly you have places that are brought into this sphere of kind of high value, highly paid work. I think that's a a huge one that we should be optimistic about. Another one is maybe climate, where I would say we are actually quite optimistic about our collective ability to solve it and do something about it. And so, you know, Stripe's bet when it comes to, we have a product here, Stripe Climate, and our bet is really on carbon removal technology, where there's going to be one set of things we do, which is uh, replacement and emissions reduction. And so, you know, replacing coal power with, you know, offshore wind or whatever it is, replacing internal combustion engines with uh, electric vehicles. That's one set of things we're going to do. There's always going to be some residual emissions. And honestly, even if you got down to zero, you still need to remove some of the carbon that we are currently emitting today to kind of catch back up to where we need to be. And so you still need to be able to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And so we have been backing 
a whole number of companies developing these very kind of space age approaches to, you know, removing carbon from the atmosphere and making it economic because it is not currently economic with offsets. And you can argue whether offsets, you know, the moral hazard is too big an issue or something like that. But, uh, you know, the goal is basically to make carbon removal technologies uh, economical. But I would say we are actually very excited about that, where the climate debate can sometimes tend towards a bit of fatalism, a bit of, you know, we should all be extremely... Kind of the, gu- the apocalypse is around, yeah, the, a bit like the AI debate. Exactly, and you know, we should all be very guilty, feel bad, basically. Whereas, in fact, I think we should feel quite optimistic about our ability to uh, to solve this stuff. And, I mean, this is kind of... Yeah. Uh, the, the, actually, uh, do you want to explain the book? Gonna, this, right, okay, do so your gay burn impression. Do my yeah. gay burn impression. But that, no, actually, no, 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 no. We'll both do it together. No, <laughs> no. so well, John and I were chatting, and he said, he said straight away, he said, I want to send you a book. And there is that book on everyone's... This is the gay burn impression. <laughs> One for everyone in the audience. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> He's a marketing genius. Okay. So Johnson, listen, listen. Uh, we're going to chat, 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 but I'd like you to read a book that I was really fascinated with. Also, I want to talk to you about Stripe Press mm-hmm. and why you got into yep. the publication business. But the, this book uh, is, it's a fantastic, I mean, it asks the question, where is my flying car? And the idea was that in the 1950s, not only was it not unreasonable, but it was entirely logical and predictable and rational and mainstream to imagine that within a matter of 20 years that we would be flying around in flying cars because the technology was there, the energy consumption, the energy was there, everything was there. And they make the point that in the 20th century, there has been this extraordinary period from about 1910, 1900 to 1950, obviously punctuated by two global wars, which accelerated things or whatever, where huge leaps have been made in the dissemination of technology and the way in which it changed people's lives. So we talked about electricity and radio and cars and flight and all that sort of stuff. And then from about 1950, certainly up until about 1970, there were huge projections of what was going to be possible And then it stopped. And the question is, why did it stop? Why did technological innovation and more the dissemination of technology stop? And you tell me. Well, yeah. (laughs) So the book is fascinating. It's about energy. It's about products. It's about about the future. And it's about why we didn't embrace the future. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as David said, it's a Stripe Press book where we started a very small line of uh, uh, publishing books. But this book in particular, what I like is it's sort of, addresses the question both literally and figuratively. Literally in that there's actually a lot of the book on flying cars, maybe more than you want to read on kind of flying cars and, you know, goes to the history of auto gyros and all these things and power to weight ratios and time comparisons. And well, actually, you know, there's these aerodynamic issues, like there's a lot on, like, actually, where's my flying car in it? But then a lot of the book is also figurative and where he, you know, using where's my flying car as, as you say, kind of what happened to the, the, the future we were promised. And there's a bunch of stuff I learned about in it. Uh, you know, for example, he goes into the um, kind of the history and sort of non-history of nanotechnology, where uh, nanotechnology was a thing that people were really excited about for a while. And, you know, the, the idea with nanotechnology is really small, nanoscale, you know, nanometer scale machines. Uh, and that might sound a bit odd or space age, but kind of he makes the analogy of we humans are capable of making tools smaller than our hands and smaller than we can work with. Like you've ever seen kind of videos of a, a watchmaker working or something like this, these really small tools. Uh, how do you make small tools? Well, you start with larger tools, you make smaller and smaller. You can actually continue that thread 
for quite a long time, you can get down to these nanoscale machines and get into really interesting material science where you're weaving these new kinds of fibers and things like that. But basically, he kind of describes how, you know, due to a variety of factors, including partly just some path dependence, where it became seen as a little bit of a crack science. And as a result, no one wanted to go into it because they didn't want to seem like a crackpot into nanotechnology. But at least the author claims it all works. Uh, and we just need to get back on the nanotechnology train to, uh, to enable more progress. But I found it But the, a, a but the general read. idea is fascinating because what it's saying, and, and, and I want to ask you about this, is that the impediment to technological progress is not technological. The impediment is us. He would make and that argument. our society. Yeah. And do you buy that? Are, are you convinced? Are you persuaded by that? I, and, and then what, yeah, yeah. what, the, what the consequences of this are? Yeah. Some of us, um, you know, there's that famous quote of the guy in the um, patent office who presumably really regretted us, uh, even in a short amount of time. I think it was 1916. Uh, you know, everything that has been, uh, will be invented has been invented. And... You could ask that question, right? Are we done with the inventions? And uh, <laughs> we've like had just, enough of that. Uh, yeah, on, well, yeah, have we gotten gotten to all the good stuff? And I, I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Where there's a bunch of things that are just around the corner, but seem very plausible, like nuclear fusion. As you know, far as we know, there's no good reason we can't do it, and there's some kind of semi promising experiments where you want to get to, you know, a positive energy ratio where, you know, what you need for a power plant is, you know, more energy coming out than you put in. And they're kind of very close to that when it comes to nuclear fusion. Honestly, even nuclear fission, just building regular nuclear power plants, we kind of got diverted from doing that. And, you know, there's all the controversies now with uh, Germany closing uh, nuclear power plants and then uh, regretting it. But, you know, there's lots of... But, But this is a serious, I mean, can you get to net zero without nuclear? I actually think you can. I mean, I think you should build nuclear, but there's also lots of progress in solar. Not in Ireland, we're not quite as well uh, as yeah, first. But, but, uh, you know, was, but, but, uh, but we have the wind. It was um, quite funny. I just said we have a guest from Trinidad and a guest, a speaker from Argentina. And this morning we were down in the, which we think we think is a great title, the Seafront Marquee. <laughs> and that betokens suggestions of, mm. you know, sun and sand and, you know, beautiful warm breezes coming in off the sea. Um, my friend from Argentina looks at me and says, is this the fucking summer? <laughs> and I said, sorry, yes. Martin, this is as good yeah. as it gets. In Ireland, yeah. yes. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but no, no, but let's go back because I, I, yeah. I love the premise of this book. You, you sent it to me. I thought, I actually worried. I thought, oh no, John has sent me a book about flying cars and it will be all about gyrations. And, and it's not, and not about that. that. And it's not, not about that. But, yeah. but on the issue, it's, it's just this... this what he's, he's making the it's, point is that we have chosen to slow down the progress. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of a rallying cry that, again, that there's lots of progress that we can be making in lots of different areas of uh, technology. You know, even in kind of core tech and software, there's still kind of loads of places that we're, we're, we're making lots of exciting progress. So I think we should be very enthused about that. But, uh, you know, I think he argues we're getting in our own way a bunch. Uh, you know, we are maybe, you know, I, I find it very frustrating in the, you know, housing debates you see where, you know, you walk around Dublin, you see lots of spots that, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, we could lash up a ton of houses and yet we managed to get in our own way, whether it's, you know, the interaction, the county council and board plan, all, that, all this kind of stuff. You know, we somehow seem to have lost the societal ability to build a lot of housing for people that need it. And that's one form of progress. I mean, that's also, you know, political debate and everything like that. But we could go through, there are various areas where we used to be able to do this yes. quite well and we seem to have slowed down. And it's the notion that we are choosing to slow down. 
Yeah. But there's no technological impediment. Yeah, to- and you know, obviously choosing is uh, you know a particular word you can use because it's kind of a societal choice where <laughs> no individual person is saying, I don't want to do this, but collectively the result of all of our actions is, you know, we're slowing down in these areas. Now, did you buy Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, I probably have a tiny bit. Yeah, no, no, but I, ask you, I, want to ask you, but yeah. I do want to ask you about the, the global economy and yeah. finance and the way in which that there is a yeah, yeah. sense right now. Yeah. There's a sense right now that we're on the verge of something possibly recession-like. There's a sense that you have Ukraine, you have mm-hmm. Russia. We were talking about globalization. We were talking about, talking about the, you know, having lots and lots of very talented people coming to work for Stripe. Mm-hmm. The counterbalance to that argument is nationalism, is racism. Mm-hmm. We have nobody really imagined that it was possible that a country like Russia would just invade yeah. a country. You know, we worry about inflation. The Fed is raising interest rates as we speak. Yeah. You know, are these things that when you're sitting down at Stripe, you're trying to think, okay, where where are we going next? And if so, where do you think? Yeah, I would say, I think for a lot of businesses, the long-term trends that were playing out will continue to play out. You know, specifically, you know, say the trends that drive our business, we think the internet economy will continue to, to grow as a share of the overall economy, we think that globalization will continue to occur, which is maybe kind of a slightly um, yeah. controversial view in, in this day and age. However, it's a pretty big bump right now. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, especially smaller businesses, but businesses generally are worried about the impact of inflation, are worried about kind of changes in behavior as a result of that, are worried about the various kind of shocks that are percolating their way throughout the system. And even like the current environment that we're in, there's a lot of independent things that are coming to a head all at once. Uh, and so... Give me an example. Well, you, you, you have the war in the Ukraine is one. But you also have a demand shock, as the economists say, where, you know, there was a lot of pent-up demand or, you know, people waiting to buy things. And maybe they were, you know, waiting to restart on a construction project because construction was closed. And suddenly everyone coming and trying to buy, you know, timber at once or, or something like that. And so you have a demand shock from people kind of coming and buying a lot of things at once. Then you have the, uh, you know, lockdowns ending in uh, certain areas. Then you have, this is kind of underreported, but a lot of ports were closed in China due to uh, COVID lockdowns uh, at various points over the past six months. And there were just huge, you know, when there'd be a COVID outbreak, there'd be huge port closure. But as a result, you have all these shipping containers that are in the wrong places and uh, supplies can get there. There was actually also... Ever given. Remember that when we were all, you know, uh, tweeting photos of the Suez Canal for a brief week. But it turns out when you block the Suez Canal for, you know, a long period of time, it takes a while for everything that, you know, all the containers were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so you have all these independent factors in the economy come to a head at once. And I think the result is kind of what you're seeing with inflation and with the, the, the current um, but but you're, it's a bump in a long-term trend. I think it's a bump in a long-term, but it could be a fairly significant, yeah. but I don't want to minimize the bump. Yeah. And can I ask you about Ireland, the country you left, Ireland, the country you, you know, you're now back. When you, when you, you know, we had a conversation about a year ago and it was just like, you know, if there were three or four things you could do, because, you know, small countries Mm. get changed by decisions quite quickly. It's not like a big country. It's not like a big super tanker that takes ages and ages and ages. It's a small place. There's only about 7 million of us knocking around the Mm. island itself, the whole island. If there were, you know, you've built this company, from from nothing to a huge, huge operation, right? You know what it's like. You've made changes. You've made consequential decisions. Probably, unlike most of us, John, you're making consequential decisions every day. 
I made about one a year, maybe, maximum, right? Tell me about, if there were two or three things you would do here, that you we could that we could actually do and achieve. What would they be? Remember, we said we're about yeah, yeah. two or three good ideas away from yeah. fixing the place or at least changing the place. So, look, I want to caveat this with um, a very dangerous question to ask someone uh, because <laughs> you know, ooh, um, it's kind of how, how to get someone into trouble, and in particular, no, 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 no. Go. Uh, well, another thing, another Silicon Valley thing, another tech thing is tech people love thinking their skills are highly generalizable, uh, <laughs> unexportable. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You also get this effect with people on Twitter. People who have too many followers on Twitter, where there's this kind of a, a pundit brain that um, that emerges, where people think they, they, you know, everyone wants their opinion on lots of stuff. So. Okay, that's fair enough. That so, is a caveat. So, so no, I want that important kind no, of health, so health and safety warning. It's not like it's John Collison says, yeah. do this, 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 and the world will be fine. Yeah. Like when you're when you're coming back yeah. and you're thinking, mm, okay, yeah. we could that, that could that, that could change a bit. We could, and that wouldn't that wouldn't really be that difficult. Yeah. Okay. So I think like an education, you're already investing. So right. So education. I mean, in in a way, somewhat narrow to what Stride thinks about. In a way, not. Which is, I think, we need many more software engineers. I think much of the world is going to be mediated by software, and we do a poor job of training software engineers today where we just don't honestly make it approachable enough, like make the path kind of clear enough for people where it should be kind of on rails. And then also we don't give enough people real world experience doing software. And so we're working on this course with the University of Limerick, where we stripe, not we, me and David. Um, and uh, <laughs> so we'd love to have you as a... a <laughs> As a consequential decision maker. <laughs> exactly, <yes. laughs> Exactly. So, so that's one thing we're doing is trying to improve the state of software engineering. Uh, that's maybe more narrow. One thing that I notice is, you know, again, to the point of kind of Ireland being actually, you know, quite cosmopolitan, globalized, and yeah. all this has been for hundreds of years. I think we kind of don't look to other countries enough for solutions. I think we often yeah. think Ireland is different. Ireland is particularly unique. <laughs> Whereas actually you just ask, how do the Danes do it? How do the Brits do it? You know, how does you know, any other country uh, work? I think it's like not a kind of question we ask ourselves enough is uh, let's kind of look around and try to steal international best practice yeah. on this stuff as opposed to people always say there's, you know, uniquely Irish considerations yeah. to this. Sometimes there is and maybe uh, sometimes there is not. So I think that's one thing that I, I would uh, definitely want. And for example, one topic I've become quite obsessed with of late is, it's going to sound really random, but uh, greenways, where I think all the, I don't know if anyone here has done the uh, the Watford one or the one in Westport, I think they're brilliant. And they're just like a really nice way to use the land and the natural beauty we have, where, you know, some kind, like again, the US has natural beauty in these very concentrated pockets where, yeah. uh, you know, go to you know, Yosemite National Park or something, it's absolutely gorgeous. But if you drop a pin in the US, you're probably in, you know, an office park in New Jersey or something like that. Yeah. Whereas Ireland, it's beautiful in just such a broad way in so much of the country. And so opening up the more of the country to hikers and bikers and runners and walkers and everything like that, I think is a great idea. And the cases where we have done this so far, it's been, uh, it's been really successful. But but again, I, I, if you actually look at Ireland, we have quite restrictive land use policies yeah. compared to other countries. So the UK, they passed this right to roam law in the year 2000, uh, which opens up a lot of the country on even private land. In a lot of places like Norway and Sweden, they have these constructs by which you can actually you know, go on private land uh, for recreation and things like that. But again, I think as we're having yeah. this, there is this kind of greenways discussion happening now. I think it's really exciting because basically golf bit of an old, like my dad plays golf, bit of an older person's, uh, you know, sport. I think, you know, young people want to, to hike get out and, and hike and, and, and bike yeah. and, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. visit coffee shops and horse boxes and stuff. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but, but to enable that, 
we could just look at what other countries are doing and steal their best practices. Yeah, and, no, and absolutely. I, I don't think no, we no, do no, that no. enough. That Irish narcissism never existed. <laughs> never existed. But I, I, I want to ask you also, because we're at a book festival, is that Stripe decided to open up a publishing house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, this is one of the... Well, what's, what's behind that? I mean, partly why not? And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but look, um, uh, Pat and I both love books and have for a long time. And I think there were a few things that came together. There were actually just a few books that we thought were super interesting, didn't get enough attention. And so we wanted to kind of broaden their yeah. audience uh, a, a little bit. And so we wanted to do that. Partly, if you talk to authors, often the book publishing experience is quite frustrating, where again, publishers are still a little bit in the mindset of operating a book factory in some cases, where even, you know, like we're going to do the initial print run of this and the advances and stuff like that. And the tech has moved along where you can do print to order. And, you know, a lot of people are buying books online on Kindles and things like that. But again, the mindset is still a little bit of one of a paper factory. And so as you talk to a lot of authors, they're a little bit uh, frustrated working with their publishers. And so we found that as we talked to authors, we thought like, Will authors want to work with a payment company for their <laughs> for their book publishing? But often they do. Pay them enough, they'll do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But <laughs> and, and like we're, we're not doing any kind of crazy economic arrangements. It's just often the you know the experience of publishing is better. And again, I just get really excited by physical books, where I think there's nothing that can kind of match it. Of uh, and you know we try to make the the actual physical books nice and a nice kind of hardcover experience and good illustrations. Yeah, and no, things, that, that, things is, like that. Because there's nothing quite like you know curling up in front of the fire good book and a cup of tea. Now, just before you go, John, where do you, John Collison, get any time in the day to read? It's increasingly squeezed. That's definitely true. <laughs> um, but uh, audiobooks, great, another great innovation where I presume a lot of people do that. But just the fact that now the catalogue is so broad, you always have like all of humanity's knowledge that someone will read to you. You know, you read these accounts of, you know, the, the Romans. You don't even or, have to do the hard stuff. Exactly. You have like the personal, uh, you know, person in your pocket at all times who will read to you. Um, apparently Napoleon used to have someone reading to him as he was brushing his teeth and everything. He was such a, you know, he wanted to be efficient in how he managed his time. You do not need to be like Napoleon, you know, employ someone to uh, read to you as you brush your teeth. You can just have uh, Audible in your pocket these days. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's very efficient. And so probably a lot of audiobooks these days is, is part of the solution but physical book when I can well John we could talk for hours but ladies and gentlemen John Collison now while I have you it's the summer you've got a choice you can sit in your Swiss hang out do nothing have a few pints take it handy or you can use the summer to learn economics with me on Patreon we have two courses the courses that I give in Trinity macroeconomic courses, cycles, booms, busts, history, the history of money, all sorts of good stuff, right? We've got the notes, we've got the reading list, we've got everything. We'll take you through it. A very fine way, if you're going to have to stroll, just put the headphones in and listen and learn economics with me. That's economics with me, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.